Hey, what's up, guys? I'm Brian Barney, and this is a new episode of Eastman's Elevated Podcast. So today on the episode, we've got on Eastman's own Dan Picard. Um, Dan's just a great guy. I really like Dan and, and have a lot of respect for him and what he does. He He's a fairly young guy, but he's just immersed himself in, in Western hunting, and he, he just finds a way to be successful. And he, he's done almost all of it with, with archery tackle. He's committed himself to a bow and arrow, which is a lot like me and, and which I respect a ton. I just know how tough it is out there and, and what a high degree of difficulty it is to do so with archery tackle. And so we sit down and have a great conversation uh, about different tactics we use and mindset and, and just different things that – that help us be successful out west on on big game. Um, Dan also does so. Um, with, most of his work is with a camera behind him. Um, he's filmed a bunch of hunts for Eastman's Hunting TV and in a bunch of new episodes coming out. Um, and then and then he's kind of the driving force behind this um, Eastman's Beyond the Grid Internet TV. So you guys have probably heard me talking about this, but uh, uh, Dan paired with Guy Eastman put on this internet tv show um dan films a lot of his buddies the films himself and then some eastman staffers and and things of that nature uh but dan just does a great job with this and and it's a a really cool deal and outlet for for eastman's and so you guys get a chance the second episode was just loosed it's a whitetail hunt it's just a great episode and the first one with this giant bull that he killed with this past client that we talk about a little bit um but you guys get a chance check it out they're doing really good work on there and and super excited for him and and also if you if you get a chance and want to reach out to dan dan's running the uh eastman's beyond the grid uh internet page or instagram page um go give that a follow and check it out he's been working really hard on the content in there just has great content um it's a great follow and a great page and then he also has a, a facebook page on there um, and, and then as well, um, Eastman's elevated. We're we're growing all the time. We're getting bigger and better guests, and I, you know, I just continually am trying to work hard to get the best content out there and the best guests for you guys to listen to, and and then also trying to work on 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 social media and things of that nature. And so we also have a new uh, Eastman's elevated uh, Instagram page um, that I've been running on there, trying to put out some really good content, good pictures for you guys. And then we also have a a new Facebook page so check those out if you guys get a chance they're really good follows on there um today's sponsor on the show is um blood sport arrows and grave digger broadheads so i used some of their gear last year and was super impressed um the the blood sport arrows um they have a really good weight they have a micro diameter shaft that i'm using and, and really good components on it good straightness factor uh good weight tolerance factor so you're getting consistent arrows which you know the key to to archery success is consistency and they're building consistent arrows um so really happy with their arrows and their performance of those they're they're grave digger broadheads you know and i you know i'm always skeptical when i'm trying a new broadhead and so i got the new ones and they make a couple different types they make a a two blade that's got a a two expandable blades that then open up a upon impact um it's got a chisel tip on it which i really like chisel tips they're a hard tip and then the two blades open up to an inch and a half cutting diameter 
Um, this broadhead is the most aerodynamic broadhead I've ever seen. The the blades tuck right into this thing on that two blade, and, and when that flies through the air, I hardly get any wind drift and 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 no wind drag to speak of. My arrows hit the same as my field points, you know, when tuned correctly. But the wind drift is fairly amazing. Out west, you know, I find the biggest thing with broadheads is for me is accuracy. If I can hit where I'm aiming, they die. Um, and, and so I'm just all about precision and, and hitting exactly where I'm aiming. And these broadheads, they collect so little wind drift that they do. They shoot exactly like a field point, which I've never found before. Even other expandables that I've shot, their blades stick out a little bit. They catch a little bit more wind and seem to wind drift more. Um, these these broadheads that Gravedigger's putting out are so aerodynamic. And, and then the inch and a half cut diameter, and it's only a two-blade broadhead, but... Um, I shot a couple animals this year with it, uh, an antelope and then a, a mule deer. I can't remember if I shot two or three with the two blade, um, but the two blade is just devastating. They didn't go anywhere and a huge cut and that inch and a half cut, even though I'm all about precision, hitting where I'm aiming, hitting in the right spot and they die, it seems like they're fairly forgiving and with that inch and a half cut, you do more damage to where if you do miss your spot, you know, you, you got more of a chance to bring down that animal. So it's a forgiving broadhead, shoots really well. Every animal I hit with it this year didn't go anywhere. I was super impressed by them. So uh, I'm really excited about the Gravedigger broadheads. The other product they have, which I shot one or two animals with this year, I know I shot my elk with it, but they make like a, it's a, it's a fixed blade with a mechanical. And so uh, it's basically the boat, the best of all worlds. So guys that won't shoot expandables because they want a fixed blade. Uh, and, and basically they just want to know that their blades are open every time and it gives them something else they don't have to worry about. Well, this broadhead is the best, best of all worlds. It's got uh, an inched fixed blade on it and then the other way it's got the two inch and a half expandable blades and you know i found that this broadhead is super aerodynamic especially for a fixed blade broadhead which you know really catch a lot of wind drift this one just doesn't it flies more like a like a regular expandable very little wind drift and, and for these bigger animals these elk and these moose and and even in deer and bear for that matter you know you, it just um a four blade going into them with an inch fixed super razor sharp and then the two expandables it it is devastating um you know my elk didn't go anywhere and and died real quick within 20 seconds maybe and so so um, super impressed by their broadheads. I'm going to continue using their broadheads. They've got no rubber bands, no O-rings, nothing to go wrong there. It's all done, you know, by by the way they clasped clasp together. Um, they they contact each other, and you can adjust it with an Allen head to get you know more contact or more resistance or less resistance. And so you kind of play with that, get the correct resistance when they close and then they open up, you know, it's almost like scissors, you know, how you've got that contact with the scissors, how they close. Same theory there, tightened by an Allen head so you can fine adjust all your broadheads. But I can't say enough about their company, the broadheads they're putting out, the arrows they're putting out. And and thanks a bunch for standing behind Eastman's Elevated Podcast and and sponsoring us. Uh, We really appreciate the support. Um, so yeah, let's, let's get this thing rolling with Dan Picard. Here we go. Eastman's elevated. Okay. I'm here with Dan Picard. Dan, how are you? I'm good, Brian. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing good. Uh, uh, winter faring okay there in Wyoming? It's, it's kind of like the Arctic. I mean, we've gotten, I mean, there's three foot of snow in the backyard there and 
it's been below zero. Last night it was 13 below. Wow. So yeah, it's been pretty rough. It's supposed to warm up this weekend, but so far pretty pretty rough. Hopefully those deer and antelope are doing okay. Yeah, that's what I worry about too. No, we're the yeah. same way. Winter has been legit. I mean, it was <laughs> yeah. uh, warm in November, but then after that, it just hasn't let up. Yeah, the um, the cold snaps, the below zero stuff, and then just a bunch of snow. So I'm like you. We fare pretty good around Montana, you know, with deer and elk because we get so many windblown slopes. But I sure worry yeah. about some of those things in the winter range. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, and it's been an uncharacteristic amount of snow. Because I mean, out out in Powell, you know, we're in the desert, and we get six inches of precip annually, and we have. Like I said, my backyard's—it's got three-foot drifts, and it's all you know, at least a couple feet of settled snow in my backyard. So pretty crazy. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, we're we're hoping for spring as well. Hopefully, it comes earlier, gives those animals a break. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, we warm up. It was supposed to be oh, up in the the upper 40s this weekend for at least the next week or so. So hopefully, we're uh, we're on the out like a lamb. <laughs> type spring. <laughs> yeah, no, I hope you're right. Well, um, yeah. this is just awesome. I'm super excited to have you on Eastman's Elevated. Um, I really respect what you do. You know, you're, you're a young guy, but you've immersed yourself in the Western hunting culture, and I'm sure you've done it from a young age, but, um, I've got so much respect for guys that are successful, guys that are consistently successful like you, and then you've done a lot of it with a camera behind you, and the, the other yeah. thing, like, with a bow and arrow is such a higher degree of difficulty and you committed yourself to your bow. Like, I don't think I've seen any of your rifle kills and you've used a bow ever since I've known you, but I just, I always really enjoy talking to you and, and really respect what you're doing. But how have you found consistent success so soon in your hunting career? Look, I think it kind of goes back to what you said, just started at such a young age, just being immersed in the outdoors. I mean, at, at age five, I was out hunting with my dad, you know, and directly after that into, into Boy Scouts. I give a lot of credit to, to Boy Scouts of being, you know, a first grader, just jump into the outdoors, winter camping, all the way through my early teen years. That really prepared me to not only learn the woods, but know how animals act and, and that chance to watch animals and obviously understanding how animals act and move and feed is probably the first step of being a consistently successful bow hunter so it's just yeah it kind of kind of a lifestyle and it just kind of evolved uh into bow hunting something that's challenged me the most in my life out of anything i've ever done and something as you know that you can't perfect it right so yeah, it's just that's that's what I kind of latched onto that because it's something that you can't perfect and it always challenges you. And obviously, it doesn't matter how good you are, how good you think you are. There's still so many variables out of your control that you can do nothing about. Boy, isn't that the truth? <laughs> like, um, like you say, the Boy Scouts give you so many tools, but it gave you confidence in the woods. And before you can be successful on a backcountry hunt, you have to be able to survive and thrive and be able to, Absolutely. you know, not die out there, be worried about your safety. So I'm sure that helped as well. Oh, absolutely. That's that's the biggest thing, you know, especially hunting deer in western Wyoming, right? Just the physical, the the, the amount of calories that you need, just surviving out there is tough enough, let alone to go kill something with a bow and arrow out there. And so being proficient at survival, I guess, and knowing the woods and and starting off young with that 
is just an incredible amount of help and preparation for what led me to where I'm at today and not knowing I was going to be here today. Yeah. And so now you work full time for Eastman's and you got hired on for Eastman's as a camera guy. Right. And then you were able to work your way on the other side of the camera now where you film nearly all your hunts. Yeah. Yeah. I started off, as you know, with Jordan Brashears and we uh, that first fall, man, we filmed (laughs) all like three, three months straight, probably of just filming and hunting and killed a bunch of stuff and had a great year. And Guy and I were like, oh, let's get this Dan guy down here. So I came down and met him, and they're like, oh, you want to come down full time? And I was like, you don't have to ask me twice. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good for you. Well, you built yourself a home there, and you're putting out some some great film projects. I've seen um, the last couple episodes, you know, with your moose, and then um, a mule deer in Idaho from last year, and then you've got this new venture that I've been talking about a bunch. That's beyond the grid hunting TV, which is a internet TV show, and and uh, you're kind of heading this project with Guy, but you guys are putting out some really good stuff there. You got to be pumped at that, huh? Oh man, it's been a huge blessing. Number one, just being able to have the opportunity to do it. And the second part is the, the connections I made as, as I did when I was a full-time guide before my life at Eastman's and just the great people that I met over the years and, and able to still hunt with those guys today. And now whether it's family or old clients or whoever, friends. And so. I've always gone on these hunts, and so I'm like, well, obviously, let's film them, and let's put them to use, and you know, this sponsorship deal, trying to stay away from that, or not focus on that necessarily, and it's just kind of, you know, we're, we're average, everyday type of hunters, just hodgepodge gear, um, so it's just kind of going on adventures with my buddies and family, and, and that's what it turned into, is kind of just making use of this footage, and, and those experiences, and adventures, and, and putting it online, so it's been been really cool yeah how cool no i love that uh the first episode with that giant bull you killed so i didn't know that you were a guide before so you had to gain a bunch of hunting experience from being a guide huh yeah that's that's the big thing i grew up in northwest montana and you know immersed in the in the hunting world with my dad and brother (laughs) but i like to say that in northwest montana i learned how to hunt and when i became a guide i learned how to kill okay yeah that makes sense (laughs) Just because the number of animals up in Northwest Montana, it's just, they're so low compared to, you know, down in your country or down here in Wyoming, that if you get one opportunity at a bowl with your bow, a season, I mean, that was great for me, you know, when I was a teenager. It took me five years to kill an elk with my bow when I was a teenager up there. Oh, I believe it. That Northwest Montana is such tough hunting up there. Um, And and bulls with your bow in general in Montana is really tough. But yeah, up there with lower populations and more cover and and timber, yeah, that country's tough to kill them in. And the underbrush up there, boy, that stuff, (laughs) I bet you're happy to get out of that. (laughs) Uh, You know how it is. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, uh, like I said, not only makes you a better hunter up there, but you're not doing much killing, that's for sure. I did anyway. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And we all got to pay our dues and learn in, in tough yep. country. But um, so when you were a guide, was that a guide in Montana for an outfitter here? Yeah, yeah. Just I made contact. It's kind of a funny story. I killed my first elk when I was oh, 13 years old. I drew one of those late season cow permits for Gardner. And I went down and I think, I, you know, my dad and my brother and I all went down and, 
300 bucks to go shoot a cow elk and, and go home. So don't mountain ranch. That's where we went. And anyway, I, uh, I got a hold of the outfitter and I was just BSing with him. And, you know, I was like, how are the elk doing down there with the wolves? And, you know, long story short, he's like, ah, oh, come down and guide for me. So that was that. I was like, you got it. I was, it was, it was all about timing too. I was just out of college and didn't have a clear direction on what I wanted to do. I graduated with a political science degree for crying out loud. And so I came down and I started guiding that fall and kind of the rest is history, just uh, guiding down at Dome Mountain in Paradise Valley. And, and uh, like I said, just getting kills, you know, we, every, every fall you're on, you know, nine to 12 bull kills. So, I mean, that's huge. That's huge. If you're just hunting, and as you know, if you're just hunting for yourself or with buddies, you know, if you can get on a few kills a year, you're gaining that experience. But when you can do it at that rapid rate, it's huge. Yeah, um, for sure. I I love that Paradise Valley, and I know that Dome Mountain Ranch, and I've hunted around the fringes of it and hunted horns, you know, in the public that sits behind it yep. and that and around it. And they used to have like a late bull hunt down there out yep. of out of Gardner that was just an insane tag, and I never <laughs> drew it, but one of my buddies drew it one year, and so we spent. I, I can't remember if it was just a, I think it was just like a four day tag. And so we went down there yep. for a day before to scout and then just hunted really hard down there, but just saw some, some huge bulls. And I know, yeah, some of the sheds that we used to pull there, but what great experience for you. Like you were yeah. talking earlier, you know, this, this hunting and this bow hunting, it's this ever evolving sport where you never get to the pinnacle and you never get to the top. And, and if you think you do, you know, that's where you've gone wrong, where, you know, you almost have yep. too much belief in yourself but it it's so challenging where you're always learning but experience is such a big key to that is gaining experience whatever that is whether you're guiding hunting with buddies shed hunting you know and, and then also being out bow hunting in every season from september yep. to november but gaining that experience in the field i think is one of the most important parts to becoming a better hunter absolutely absolutely without a doubt and especially just spending time in the field with the animals, you know, cause you have all that time behind glass, watching them and just observing and knowing what they do and figuring out their movements. And, you know, just the more you do it, the better you get, you know, you know how it goes. Yeah, no, that's totally it. Well, and it's, um, you know, it's getting those experiences, but it's also learning from them too. It's learning from your failures, yes. learning from your failed stocks and your missed shots. Um, it, you know, you start to get, better instincts the longer you do it and so you make better decisions on when you're going to stalk and when you're going to make a play and you just seem to gain more confidence in yourself with the more experience you get absolutely absolutely that the the number one thing for me was patience that's what i gained um and i think that's what's helped me the most as well is just patience out there you know you see something you want to kill them whether it's a deer elk or whatever not necessarily just rushing in there trying to get close and killing them, you know, being able to sit back for a minute and come up with a plan in your head and, and, you know, hopefully execute a stock. So yeah, that's huge. Oh, patience. Um, yeah, you spot on, uh, hit the nail on the head with that one. Like it's, 
um, patience is the key to success a lot of times, yeah. but, but it's believing in knowing when the right move is. But yeah, no, I have this saying that I use all the time that patience kills the buck or patience kills the bull. Like the more yeah. patient you can be, the better off you are, you know, you can, you can always give that thing, you know, instead of rushing in and blowing them up and then having to start over, if you can be patient and really wait for him to put himself in a bad spot or a bad position or, or wait for a really high percentage play or wait till you know the winds are right to where you're not gambling on mountain winds and mountain breezes just the more successful you can be in every situation being more patient usually helps absolutely and, and it, that goes exactly back to what you're saying is you most of the time you learn that stuff based on your failures <laughs> yeah for sure rushing so, in and blowing yeah, the whole world yeah. up time and time again <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah isn't that the truth yeah no you you learn by messing up and making mistakes and and uh now patience is is so important and it's so tough for us young guys too because we want to accomplish our goals and we want to harvest an animal and we've done this work and we found that animal now we want to make a play we want to go kill them and we almost rush in too fast until we learn that lesson hard over and over and over again absolutely no you hit the nail on the head and it kind of goes back where you know us guys we're we're used to hard work and you know in life the harder you work the better results you get or the greater reward right that's kind of how our society works and how life works in general but that's not necessarily the case in bow hunting just because you hike farther or work harder or you know, run after an elk or a deer faster doesn't mean you're going to be successful. Yeah, you have to hunt smarter. You have to smarter. make more yep. calculated plans and be patient. And and that's, I mean, I still struggle with it a bunch. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. It, it's absolutely. something that this constant evolution. But, you know, there too, you know, at least for me, and I don't know how you play your situations or stocks, but um, I, I've also played things where I'm too patient. Have you ever waited too long to make a move or watched for too long and it, and it doesn't work out? Oh, absolutely. You know, you go into a hunt with the mindset of how you're going to be so methodical about it. You're going to be patient. You're going to slip up on them. And before you know it, you know, the opportunity has gone. Yeah, or like I'll find a, a giant buck, like a 200-inch buck or or say a, a 370-inch bull, and I, I'll almost play those more cautious than I should because I found this giant trophy. Yep. And like what I've done before is I'll be miles back in the wilderness and I'll find this giant buck, and pretty soon – like I won't take the opportunities and I'll sit back and I'll watch day after day after day. And it's like I'm waiting for it to be gift wrapped for me where it's like, no, <laughs> yeah. I, I just need to get a high percentage chance. And that's where I go all in. But, you know, if you watch for three, four five days on this buck and you never make a move, like you say, he can disappear from you or you finally do end up making a, a high percentage play. And you end up blowing them out of there, and then you've already you've wasted three, four, five days watching this buck where you could have been yep. making other moves or relocating or taking chances. So, uh, you know, you have to be aggressive but patient, and and I think like it's just that experience and those instincts that tell you, okay, this is a high percentage play. I'm going to go for it. But like me, I I don't I don't usually watch an animal for more than a a day to two days is just is absolute tops for me. Like in those couple days, I'll find an opportunity. Absolutely, absolutely. And one of my buddies, Tyler Johnerson, there in Paradise Valley, he, he always told me to 
I think you used the number. You said 70%. If you're 70% sure you can go kill that buck or bull, then you should definitely do it. And I'm, I'm probably more of a 50, 50. I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) where if I'm like, I got a little something to work with. I got the win in this scenario. I can make do with the rest. I'm probably going to try it. Yeah, good. Well, yeah, you have the same mindset so. as me too. Yeah, I'm and and you're never reckless. You're never if the wind's wrong, the wind's wrong, you don't go. If the, if right. the approach is wrong, there's deer in the way, you don't go. And so you're never reckless with your stocks, but if there's an opportunity to get in and make something happen, I'm I'm going to roll the dice. I'm going to see what I can Absolutely. make happen. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, you have to. You have to. And especially you know, where we do most of our hunts on public land, you know, you don't know the next day there's going to be guys coming in there blowing things out. Weather events, you just never know. So if you if you have something to grasp, you have the wind or you have some terrain, maybe another variable that's in your favor, you got to go for it. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I also like to like to get in close, you know, or close the distance, and then I'll be patient from that. Like I'm in striking yep. distance where now if that buck makes a mistake or that bull makes a mistake, I'm right there in striking di- distance, you know, minutes away from them instead of an hour away from them. And so sometimes if I don't have a play, I look for a vantage point that's going to set me up closer within yes. striking distance for that day or for that evening. Do you play that as well? Absolutely. No, that brings up a really good point of kind of my mentality on stocks like that. If I always say if I can get within 100 yards or within 80 yards, you know, just just outside of bow range, if I can get within that distance, I've done my part. That deer, that elk needs to do their part and I'm going to have to get lucky and, and they close that distance for me anyway. And it depends on the situation. But just being in close and within striking distance is huge, obviously, if you have the wind. But usually, from my experience, what I've found is if I do my part and I get within that borderline striking distance, most of my kills end up is because the animal has done their part and they've cut off that last 30 or 40 yards or 50 yards for me. Yeah, um it's so wild how um, different successful hunters have the same theories but different sayings they use because yeah. I, I have that same thing. I, I always say, um, let the buck make the last mistake. Let the bull yeah. make the last mistake. I get in close, but I'm not going to force it. I'm not, you know, I'm not the guy that throws a rock on a bedded mule deer. I know it works and it can work and sometimes it's necessary, but it's just not me and not how I play the game. Or if I've got something bedded and his head's hidden behind a tree, I don't try to force it and get around in the open where i've got a shot right then and there like i'll just hold tight and go okay like you say i've done my part i'm gonna let him do his part i say okay i've done everything i can do now i need that buck to make the final mistake yep yep no that's exactly it i mean it's definitely on the same page there and that's where i found uh, my most success and obviously you're on on the same page with that too so yeah it's just wild and yeah and we we have a lot of differences too i love comparing theories with you and we kind of keep in touch through the phone and through different articles about archery and and you're really knowledgeable with your archery gear and you work really hard at it but sometimes our theory's different you know your draw lengths longer than mine you know we've talked about you know you you'll shoot a shoulder on an antelope or a whitetail and just just things like that that kind of differ a little bit and that's why i love comparing notes with you you know is your understanding of archery is so good but um so so i really like that that we can compare things and have discussions back and forth of what works for us and and i learn a lot from you that way you know when we're having those conversations well absolutely and it goes both ways because i mean what are you 27 inch draw length yep 
uh, and I'm 29 and that's, that's a huge difference on your momentum, kinetic energy, whatever you want to call it. It's huge. And your speed. And like you said, you just can't go and shoot through a shoulder on a deer or antelope with, you know, your setup. You're not comfortable doing it. You won't do it. And, you know, that's the type of stuff that you have to be able to identify. And a lot of that is trial by error and applying to your setup and applying to your specs and kind of working with it from there. Yeah, so, for sure. Yeah. And, and on the flip side, so I got a 29 inch draw length, so I have a lot of power. I think I'm like, man, with my setup, it's like 89 foot pounds of kinetic energy, which is just huge. And so if I have the right broadhead, I mean, deer size game or smaller, I shoot for the shoulder and break them down, you know? Yeah, no, and, you've got so much energy there. Yeah, you could shoot a Velociraptor and take a deal yeah. that setup, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that's that's the beauty of, of archery, though, and bow hunting is being able to tinker and compare and mess with setups and mess with broadheads. And, you know, we're, we geek out about that stuff. We're geeks in this world, and that's what I love about it. Yeah, for sure. Um, how are you liking? Uh, are you shooting that new Halon 32? Yeah, yeah, I got the 32 in. I'll be honest with you, I haven't shot it too much, but, uh, you know, the couple dozen arrows I have shot through it is, you know, similar experience to the, just the Halon, the 30. So another great bow. I'm going to, I know I'm going to like it. So excited to hunt with that this year for sure. Yeah. Well, and I like the longer, longer axle to axle. I've always shot longer axle to axle for a more forgiving setup. And I, I like the 30 Halon too, but, or the 30 Halon. Uh, also but that 32 um it seems to be a pretty sweet bow i'm just getting mine set up now and i i went with the six inch brace instead of the seven this year try to gain some more um performance out of it and then also shortened up my draw length a little bit on it too Mm. um but yeah no i i'm psyched to get that thing out and and get ripping with it and see how it shoots at distance here oh yeah no absolutely and especially you know longer draw or axle axle guys, you're you're gonna love it for sure. Yeah. So um so you're probably getting ready to get out of there and getting some warm sun. I know every year you talk about and I've I've read your articles in, in Eastman's about uh hunting Hawaii over there. You love to go over there, don't you? Oh man, I can't get enough. I keep saying, Oh, this is gonna be my last year, I'm done with that and I just I finally told Ike this year, I'm like, it's just gonna be an annual trip. That's just the way it's gonna be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good for you. Uh what so, what time of year do you go do that? Oh, you know, it just when I can get away anywhere from March to May, I'm gonna go the middle of May this year and kinda hopefully hit the axis rut, you know, in the middle a little more. But um kinda going back to why I, I do it every year, it's just so beneficial for for the fall and for you know as an archer and bow hunter in general to get that repetition of shooting at animals and you know i'll go hunt axis deer for you know nine days straight and i'll i'll shoot at probably 13 or 14 deer and probably kill five or six just because they're so fast you never know what they're going to do and i mean (laughs) it's so challenging it's one of those things where opportunity is high, incredibly high for shot opportunities, that is, but success is still pretty difficult just because of the nature of, of the axis deer. So Wow, they're so they're um they're really tough to get in on, huh? Wiley? Oh yeah, they're I don't even know what you can compare them to antelope on steroids or whitetail on crack. I don't know. What that sounds doing. like a coos deer to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, no doubt, yeah. And they're kind of like, it's funny because a lot of times you're hunting, you know, a, a herd of them of 40, 50, 60, 70, 
And as you know, you have all those eyes to deal with, but they're kind of like geese, you know, they'll go bed down and then they'll have sentry does up on the edges that does that just stand there and look around oh, like they wow. rarely ever let their guard down. And, and so, yeah, it just makes it difficult. I, I've heard the meat's insane on them, huh? One of the best eaten deer. Oh, absolutely. I, I guess the experts say, or the science says, that they're the most lean meat out of any ungulate in the world, or whatever it is. They're the, the most lean of, of uh, protein. And yeah, the tail fare is just incredible. It's easily my favorite meat, easily. Yeah, um, they're a beautiful deer. Um, so that, that, you know, again, that how much experience is that for you? That's got to be like a whole season hunting out west, or maybe even oh, yeah. two season worth of experiences, not in days so much, but in stocks and plays and chances. And and the more you can exercise that muscle of making game plans, making stocks, especially on a tough, challenging animal like that, and then executing shots. I, I mean, that's that's got to be a, a lot of the reason why you're as good as you are is is your experience you gain over there. Absolutely. With, without a doubt, without a doubt, you know, you're, you're going in and you're making multiple stocks a day and, you know, going back to experience. I mean, I probably get three bow seasons worth of experience over there in one spring. Wow. Just because the number of shots and, you, you know, usually I'll go hunt goats and pigs and deer and heck I spent uh, six weeks over there one year. Wow. And I think I killed like 14 goats and seven deer and, like 17 pigs or something insane like that. And, and just that repetition of shooting at animals. And <laughs> before you know it, you, you kind of quit getting shaky. The buck fever kind of goes away and you just, you turn into a, just a stone cold killer over there. Yeah. I'd say just that. Yeah. Just because that confidence, you know, that your confidence, it's huge and it just skyrockets over there when you're launching that many arrows. Well, and I love making plays and game plans, that many game plans. I mean, of those animals yep. you shot, you know, you stocked how many more animals, it, it, you know, so you just gain in so much experience making a game plan, knowing when the right time to, to move in or move out, man, that's just awesome. So when you're hunting Hawaii, like I got an invite from a friend, um, Sean, a new friend of mine, um, that wants me to come out and hunt. Is there, is there any public land or do you got to kind of make friends with some guys over there? How to, how do you go about hunting in Hawaii in the springtime? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of both. I, and I still hunt public land over there, but over the years and through old clients, I've made some great friends over there. And the cool thing, Brian, with these guys over there is totally different culture, you know, from different walks of life. But when it comes to hunting, we're the exact same, you know, just great guys, ready to hunt hard, ready to work hard and just embrace it and love that lifestyle and love that that whole realm of bow hunting and hunting in general. And so over the years, I've been lucky enough to, to meet guys and kind of get connected with locals. And before you know it, you got, you know, private places to hunt. And I still have my, my places on public that I still hunt. And every Island has public hunting areas. Oh, nice. And yeah. And so it just depends on whether you want to go after, you know, the deer or pigs or goats or mouflon on Lanai or, or whatever. There's public everywhere and you know everywhere has a season and there's always something to hunt that's for sure yeah well a lot of their season runs year round isn't that correct yeah yeah for the most part um and and each island is different um you know i think like for pigs and goats they say that you can only hunt like friday uh, friday saturday sunday 
Um, and, and they have bag limits in some areas and then other areas it's wide open with a bow and like deer, like Molokai or, or Maui, there's no limit and there's no season. So it's just kind of go for it, you know? Wow. Um, crazy that, uh, Mouflon on Lanai. So those are a sheep that are on that Lanai Island that you take a boat over to, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Lanai, they, uh, they introduced the axis deer and mouflon there in the 1800s and it's, it's pretty controlled. The, the mouflon is probably the most controlled hunt in Hawaii because it's specific dates and specific seasons for archery, muzzleloader and rifle. And you can only kill one ram. So it's pretty regulated, but it's definitely an experience that you'll never get anywhere else. And for a, you know, a pretty good value too for, and it doesn't cost that much. Yeah. Um, so that new buddy of mine, Sean Kern, and, and so he's friends with my cousin is how I met him. And he wanted to come out West elk hunting and mule deer hunting. And so I help him out with information and of course, invite him to stay at my house and, and hunt from here. But he's just such a good guy. Like you were saying, you know, um, so wants me to come out there and stay with him and, and give him, he gives me a place to stay and wants me to hunt the sheep and wants me to hunt axis deer. And, and, uh, then he, He's introduced me to a couple of his buddies, and and before you know it, I feel like I've got to run all the islands. I've never even been there. <laughs> oh yeah, that's how it goes. Those guys, they're so willing to help, you know, and they don't want anything from you. They don't care, and they just want to help. And they're the it's aloha spirit is what they call it. Is they're just so willing to help, and you know the the level of kindness from those guys over there is unlike anywhere you'll find anywhere on the mainland. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, so you say it's fairly affordable compared to the animals that you're able to harvest, um, without telling me your exact taxes, like what's a guy wrap into something like that? Or how much do you budget every year when you head over there? You know, you're going to, your plane ticket is the biggest expense. And depending on when you book it or where you go from four to $700, I think the cheapest plane ticket I've ever got for a round trip from like Billings and back is 468, I think was the cheapest. Um, and so you got that and you got to rent a car and depending on if you know somebody, you can stay with them. Otherwise a condo and you can, you know, if you go with a group of guys, you can, you know, rent a condo for pretty cheap. But I figure now that, you know, I hunt with all these guys over there, I can do the whole trip for a grand. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. That's what you can do a trip out West for pretty much. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. there isn't, um, do you have to buy tags for all those animals or a hunting license or what do you go about? Uh, how do you go about that? Yeah, there's the, the kind of bummer part is the, the non-resident hunting license and the specific bummer part is it's kind of a pain in the butt to get. And if you want to go over to Hawaii to hunt, I would highly recommend, uh, getting it before you go over there because you can get it online, but it's like a six week process for them to get you a hunting license back. Oh, wow. Yeah, but it's like a non-resident hunting, it's like a hundred bucks now. And that pretty much gives you, you know, the license to hunt anything you want with a bow. Um, but like I said, I went over there and I tried to buy a hunting license locally and everybody's out of them. You can hardly get one. Oh, gotcha. So, well, uh, yeah, what great, what a great tip to have is just to plan yeah. in advance when you're headed over there. Absolutely. Get it in advance and, and you have to have your bow hunter ID card. They need your number for that. So as long as you have a hunter safety card or whether it's bow hunter safety, I don't even think it matters as long as you have a hunter safety card. Do it ahead of time and get on the, the, you know, the state website and 
get it ahead of time for sure. Huh? How cool. Yeah. What a unique trip. And yeah, you're doing it every year. And, and along with that, you know, just like we were talking, just gaining so much experience. And I think it's important for guys, if you really want to improve at your bow hunting or at your hunting skill, experience is key. And it's not just days of field like, like elk, you may hunt for eight, nine, 10 days and you might only get a couple stocks, you know, but these high percentage chances you have at animals, like, like you've probably done a lot of whitetail doe hunting like I have because tags come easy you get stocks and you get chances and whitetail are challenging to hunt but the more just the more opportunities and the the more you're exercising that experience muscle of making stocks and making plays on things you know I think that's what what's brought up my skill level as well is just a lot of opportunity and chances oh you I mean you hit the nail on the head that's that's what it is you know you you can hunt all season and get one chance over here you know, a deer or elk or whatever you're hunting. And I know guys that do that. They won't shoot a doe or they won't shoot a young bull or a young buck that's got to be a six point and they shoot one arrow a season if they're lucky and they, they kill something. And, you know, I get that mindset, but it, it doesn't really do a lot for you when it comes down to actually getting in a position, drawing your bow and launching an arrow. It's a, a totally different ball game than just the hunting part, as you know. Yeah. So when you're planning your hunts um, for the West, you know, just make sure that you're getting a lot of high high percentage or high chance, a lot of opportunity, you know, and you're mixing those hunts in with other trophy hunts and like the, you know, white-tailed does are a great one if you've got that local or a state that's close to you. You know, another great one is antelope. You get a ton of play on antelope, you know, and they're really challenging to spot and stock. So that's one where I get a bunch of experience and like it opens uh, August 15th here in Montana. And so that's kind of my warm-up for fall and I'm like you, I can't just fire one arrow a year. Like, I need the experience of getting in range. And, and even though, you know, I don't have a lot of buck fever, at the beginning of the season, I'm so amped up. And the first couple animals I'm on, you know, I got adrenaline pumping through my veins, right? You know, I get a little bit of that, that I, the more I stalk and the more I do, the more I get over and the better I handle those situations. And so antelope's always my warm up every year. Yep. Yep. No, man, you hit the, the nail right on the head again. Uh, <laughs> every year I'm the same way. I think it was, it was bear season last year. I killed that bear and I was so amped up and shaken and, you know, just getting the cobwebs off is kind of the first step. And then, you know, I get into bow season, you kind of, you know, you get the routine down and everything, but that's huge. Those, those opportunity hunts, those early season hunts to kind of dust off the cobwebs and, and, you know, let that adrenaline flow out of you a little bit is, is essential for sure. Yeah. Um, that was a, a heck of a bear last year or the footage was so epic that you sent me of that, that bear harvest. When are you going to loose that somewhere? Yeah, that was, that's going to be a TV show. I think it's supposed to air, oh, the first week of April. So it should be right before bear season starts kicking in. It's, it's going to be a good one. Definitely, you know, probably some of the coolest footage I've ever you know, been a part of or, you know, shooting and everything. And I mean, you saw it too. It's like, it was pretty cool. Yeah. Well, and, um, I know how tough bears are, you know, I, I hunt them every year and, and bears are great to, to hunt in the springtime and you do end up seeing a lot of them, but, and they are made for stalking with a bow, 
but man, is it tough to put it together with a bow. Like they, you just, you've got to see, you know, five times as many as a guy with a rifle or 10 times as many. And you've got to <laughs> stalk and fail and, and, uh, you get there and they're gone. And, you know, the, the wind plays a major factor in it, but bears are so challenging in the spring and in a long, you know, uh, this whole, this whole Eastman's elevated, we've been talking about experience, but there's also experience sitting high, behind your glass and theorizing where bears are going to be and, which canyon you're going to hike in and, and trying to, to make sense of it and, and get a, a rhyme and reason to what they're doing and where they're feeding. And, and bears like deer and elk, you know, there, there's hundreds of thousands of them in the hills. And not that they're everywhere behind every tree, but bears, there's far fewer bears. And so you really got to key in on, on their habits and where they like. But, yeah, props to you, that, that bear with your bow, that uh, such cool footage. I can't wait for that episode to come out. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's definitely going to be a good one. That kind of brought up another thought too. Is I've been starting to hunt a little bit tighter of country now because in Paradise Valley, where I used to hunt, you're looking over such huge areas. You know, you see a bear, and you're like, well, you know, I could try to make a stock, but by the time I get over there, you know, who knows where that thing's going to be? And hunting that tighter country has definitely helped me a lot as far as okay, seeing a bear. And being able to get on him quick and keep track of him and, you know, get him killed before I lose him. And, you know, you, you might only see a couple a season, but, you know, that's kind of what you need anyway. Just one opportunity, kind of close quarters and being able to get over there to him and getting him killed as soon as possible before you lose track of him. Oh, I like that. So um, instead of your theory of sitting on a spot where you can just see miles and miles and miles, but that bear might be four or five miles away, you're having better success and better odds hunting tighter country and hunting bottoms and, and still hunting, but also still hunting while glassing, of course. But, but you're hunting to where when you do see a bear, you know, he's, he's a few hundred yards instead of a few miles away and you get a higher percentage chance at him. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly it. And, and a lot of that comes from Google Earth where I can find vantage points. And obviously it's, it's a little different in the real world, the real world from what Google Earth is, but that's helped me a lot in being able to find vantage points where I can set up, you know, and maybe I'm looking over one or two draws or one canyon and just putting that time in, you know, in those, in those areas where if I do have an encounter, it's going to be within, you know, five, six, seven hundred yards max and, you know, giving me enough time to get over there and kill them. Cause I don't, I don't know about you. You probably hunt more bears than I do. I mean, how many bears do you spot? And by the time you get over there, you know, you're like, where, where'd they go? <laughs> oh, constantly. That's the game. Yeah. I mean, and, and two, you try to, I try to mix and match what you do and then master vantage points. But I bet you're finding a lot of bears too, because bears like, secluded spots they sure they yeah. like green grass and they like meadow grass but they don't like to be in the wide open where you can glass you know a lot of times you can't glass miles and miles you've got to commit to one you know one canyon or one spot but the more cover it has in isolated little green meadows and in, in secluded nature of the canyon it seems like the more bears that are in there and probably hunting those tight quarters you get to look for sign as you're hiking up and down and and see you know where they've been and where they're hanging out as well absolutely absolutely and just you know looking and that's the other thing i mean it comes with experience you know bears like those the tight quarters the pockets and the tree lines and edges and brush lines and all that stuff and you're checking that stuff for sign 
And if I see sign in there, you know, whether it's poop or tracks, I might sit in there, you know, for a couple of days and just keep the faith. And if I see him, I'm probably going to get a chance at him. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, if you see the sign in there, it's like he's living in there, and then you just got to catch him in there. Just be in there at the the right time. So I'm the same way. I hunt yep. sign a lot, and I hunt master vantage points in tight drainages. Sometimes I'll hunt it, at, you know, where I can see a bunch, and then I'll also mix and match still hunting. Like bears love bottoms in that, and so I'll hike up a bottom with a good wind and kind of still hunt it. And, and then you're able to see the sign in there and go, man, there's four or five bears that are living in this thing. I better hike this thing every day and see if I can't catch up to one of those and eventually you, you bump into one exactly exactly and it's been a while since I've got that lucky I haven't had too much success doing that but if you're in a, a high density area where the bears are there I mean heck yeah go for it yeah where their numbers are condensed no um so yep. you spot most of yours from vantage points then yeah you know it's it's been so spotty over the years on how I found them and you know, whether it's early, an early season bear is going to act a lot different than a June bear, um, you know, with the rut kicking in and how, how nomadic they are, how, how far those boars travel. And actually going back to that bear I shot this spring, it was in June. He was actually courting a sow and they were together and kind of down lower country and, but in a tight canyon and, you know, saw him from a vantage point and slipped down and, and killed him. But, that's the, the tricky part, too, is being able to evolve during the season with the bear habits. Oh, right. And evolve in all hunting, in all situations. Yes. Like hunts, you plan for them and you study and you study maps and you have backup plans. And then you get there and it's like you've been hit in the face or something. Like you can't, all of a sudden the animals aren't where you think and everything's changed and it's not how you planned it and it's not as easy as you thought it would but it's so about adapting to your environment and adapting to what the animals are doing to be successful i think that's a huge part of it oh i mean absolutely if if you can't roll with the flow you're probably not going to be a very successful bow hunter <laughs> just because you get something figured out one day the next day it's totally different yeah, you have to be willing to change and and willing to adapt and and look for those animals' weaknesses. You know whether you know where he's putting away to bed or um, you know where he's coming out feeding in the evening and and try to kind of outsmart them on their patterns. But yeah, if you're not willing to adapt to real life situations, like oh I I so I remember this good one, this spot I hunt in Colorado that um I'd hunt from like it's this giant ridge that sits. Uh, close to 13,000 feet, and I'd go up on top of this ridge, and then I'd glass down, and I'd spot bucks down there, but the biggest ones, you know, they disappear as they went into their bedding area, because I'm at the top of the ridge trying to look down, and I just couldn't see them very well, and they disappear, and also, like, the feature that I was hunting was a couple miles wide, and so I'd have to start at one end and work my way to the other end, and glassing down looking for these bucks, and I, I played this game for, like, three or four days, and there was some really nice bucks in there, but I couldn't ever bet them and I couldn't ever get them in a good situation and three four days went by and I never got a stock and so you know thinking on the fly and, and thinking outside the box I thought I got to get off this ridge I'm right on top I'm close for a stock this is how I'd usually play it but in this scenario I climbed you know 1500 feet down off the feature but where I could get a master vantage point and see those whole two miles that whole ridge that whole feature and then from that position I could keep tabs on all the bucks, the couple biggest bucks that were up there. You know, I could watch them and bet them and, and see their habits. 
And even though I was a couple hours away with the stock, that change in that adapting, I was able to keep track of them and then plan a, you know, a calculated good stock on them. And I ended up killing a buck that way where, you know, it was four days the other way trying to do it from the top like I usually would. And it just wasn't working. But it, it just reminded me that uh, like adapting your skills and adapting your tactics to the environment around you, thinking on the fly is such an important part of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. If if you have that inside the box mindset, it doesn't usually work too well. You always got to be going back to the evolving. You always got to be ready to evolve and change and just work with whatever the hand you're dealt. Yeah. And that's where, um, you know, keeping that, keeping your mind fresh and not getting beat down, you know, getting in good shape before season, you know, fueling your body with the right nutrition, nutrition. And for me, like I, I'm a sucker for a cup of coffee, just gets my mind racing and thinking, you know, and I know it dehydrates you a little in the backcountry, but it's like this psychological advantage I use it. If I can sit back and have a cup of coffee and just think over like the world and what's going on around me, it seems like I can come up with a good plan of what's next or what I have to do. Yeah, no, exactly. You sound like a Zen master up there drinking your coffee. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish I was, yeah, cross-legged up there having my coffee. <laughs> yeah, uh, not quite, but, uh, well, and a, a lot of that adapting, too, is just trying to find the animals, you know. A lot of times you're you're not on them all the time or where you thought they were, they're not, but you got to keep your mood yeah. up and, and have a plan to go travel to different drainages and, and keep looking for them, but you are always got to be theoretical rising in your head what's what your next move and next play is absolutely absolutely anticipation and theorizing and and the the big thing for me we'll see what you say about it but a positive attitude is probably the most powerful tool that i've applied on my hunts just keeping the faith believing that i can get it done and not believing anything else you know there's no negativity it's all positive and that's the way you got to keep it yeah, isn't that right? Yeah, no, a positive attitude, a huge part of my success. I I always believe the next day is going to be it or the next stock I'm going to kill it. Every animal I see I think I can kill. Like sometimes I'm too positive, but no, I'm with you. A positive attitude is everything. Not letting yourself get dragged down and a lot of that is picking yourself up after a – you know, a failed stock or a failed chance, or there's no animals here. Like there's, there's a lot of reason to go negative, but you can't let yourself get there. You just, you always got to keep positive in your next chance, next opportunity. Yep. Yeah, yep. without a doubt, without a doubt. Well, and you've been successful on some really long, grueling hunts with the odds stacked against you. Um, you know, like that that elk hunt you went on this year. Like, I haven't heard a whole bunch about it, but I know you were hunting for a bunch of days, and it was a tough hunt. Um, how'd you find success on that hunt? Well, that was one of those things. It, it was a, a great hunt, and I was being a little picky this year on what bull I wanted to kill. But you know, that's another one that's. It's a physically exhausting hunt. You know, you're six miles in there and we were, we were, you know, drop camped in there, but such big country, such rugged terrain, busting your butt, looking at multiple different drainages to find, you know, the one, the bull that you want to go after. And, you know, it just took some time and, and that's all it was. And I think I was, I did a five day trip in there and then I took a day or two off and then I went in there for, well, it ended up being three more days, but I, I killed that bull the first night of the second trip. Um, but yeah, just 
perseverance, sticking with it, keeping the faith and, and trying to dodge the grizzly bears too. <laughs> <laughs> a few of those things in there, huh? Holy smokes. You're, you're going to like this show too. It's going to be airing this next winter, next December, but grizzly bear encounters and bulls in your face. That's up bull. I shot it like nine yards. He came around the corner and, and, uh, killed him. He was chasing off another bull, but, um, it was, it was kind of funny. That was the first night that I was in there. I killed that bull. And of course, you know, we, we got him out. It was right at the end of the, the day. So we got him out and we hung up our base layers on him and, you know, peed around him and trying to keep the grizzly bears off him for the night. And, you know, we'd go back and we saw a grizzly bear on the way in and there's tracks on the trail and there were some deer hunters above us and they kicked out a sow and two cubs. It was like freaking Narnia of grizzly bears in there. And <laughs> so that night, you know, we're, we're camped and I'm, you know, I stink like elk. I just gutted an elk and I got bloody boots and I'm trying to get those away from the tent. And I got the old 44 mags, you know, next to my pillow and my camera guy's in there too. And he's got a little sawed off shotgun and I was, you know, we're ready for him, but it definitely keeps you on edge. That's for sure. Yeah, it does. Well, and, um, you know, and when you're seeing them and seeing tracks and you know, they're in there, um, it's hard not to let your mind play some tricks with you too, you know, tougher to get to sleep at night and you kind of, <laughs> your mind kind of races in the darkness a little bit and, um, but everything turned out all right, huh? Nothing messed with your bull and able to collect him the next day. Yep. Yep. No, we, we did all right. And it was kind of funny about 60 yards above my bull, there's two sets of G bear tracks. And I don't know if it was from that day or the day before, but they walked by that area anyway, but yeah, he was untouched and we didn't have any issues and, you know, keep a clean camp. And we hung our food like 500 yards from camp and, you know, did everything right and didn't have any problems. Yeah. Good for you. That's the key too. And that's what keeps my mind at ease is like you say, keeping a real clean camp, hanging your food every night. Um, you know, not eating Snickers inside your tent or anything like that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I've been in a, a ton of grizzly bear country all my life. And, and you have too in the Paradise Valley. It's just full of them. But it seems like if, if you keep that and then really keep your, your sense and your wood wise about you as you're walking through the woods and, and, uh, when you see a bear, like I don't automatically let them know I'm there. You know, I try to keep my scent right and back out and just give them space and let them do his deal, you know. But, um, it seems like if you practice those you know you keep pretty safe in the high country oh yeah absolutely and it's you know you got to be careful on where you're walking and you know don't be foolish on just busting through a creek bottom or you know walking around tight cover all the time where you might startle one so you got to be smart with how you navigate the terrain too and going back to what you said is just you know you're always hunting when you're in grizzly bear country and just because you see one or you come across one doesn't mean that he has to know you're there yeah, for sure. Well, and I like so. if you let him know you're there inside a hundred yards or even inside a hundred and fifty, he has to make a choice, fight or flight, and he yep. either charges or he takes off running away from you. And I like to just not even give him that option. I like to just keep the wind right, give him a wide berth, and just keep out of their area and let him just go and roam and do whatever he's gonna do. And and then you know, like I say, just give him his space. Yep. Yep. You got it. Yeah, for sure. Well, <laughs> that sounds thick with grizzly bears. Yeah, I bet that was an epic adventure. I'm sure it's going to make a great episode. Oh, yeah, it's, it'll be a double episode. And it was so fun, too. Uh, Ike packed me in and, and Guy and Ike came and got me. And so being able to, you know, pack in an elk hunt with those guys and, you know, them being able to, to help me out, you know, kind of the the romantic part of 
elk hunting and kind of the Eastman family heritage and that tradition and being a part of it, that, that was special in itself as well. Oh, I bet. Yeah. So that was a, a Wyoming hunt. Is that right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Oh, how cool, man. Yeah. Um, yeah, you get to go on some epic adventures. You do really well. And, and, uh, so you, and then you were able to get your, uh, get a moose this year too, right? You went up to, uh, BC for that. Yep. Yep. No, man, I'm, I'm so blessed with the opportunities that these guys give me. And, you know, this is stuff I never thought I'd be doing when I was, you know, a 15 year old out there tromping around bow hunting. But, um, yeah, we on assignment up there in British Columbia and, and got to go hunt a moose with a bow, which I've been dreaming about since I was just a little guy. And, and, uh, it actually, it wasn't even fair on killing that thing. I got up there and I shot him the first hour of the first day. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and where, you know, you almost feel bad, you know, the hunt coming together that quickly. But on the other hand, I told my camera guys, like, you know, Tim, we've got our butts kicked most of the season. So we're going to take this one, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's what I always say, too. You got to take the easy ones with the tough ones. You know, you work so hard so much of the time and, and it's so tough to make things come together. Like if you get an opportunity at a great animal the first day, you got to take it and just smile and be happy. I For me, anyways. Oh, oh absolutely. Absolutely. And just knowing kind of what's up there and what they have to offer and the size of bulls that they're killing. And it was funny, funny, uh, Brandon Mason was up there with me too. And he's like, man, I'm sure glad you shot that bull. Cause he was rifle hunting. And he's like, I don't know if I would have shot it. It was the first day of the first hour. I, I mean, this hunt's going to be awesome, but it ended up being a tough hunt for him, you know, with the snow that we got and things change and, and, uh, we didn't see another mature bull that whole trip. So you just never know. You got to, got to be on top of your opportunities and know what, you know, a place has to offer and be ready to shoot or not. <laughs> yeah, no, moose can be tough um, for sure. I did that Alaskan hunt this year. What an epic adventure. God, I, yeah. I saw like 10 different bulls on the hunt. I saw some great big ones, the ones you dream about, 60 inches and bigger. You know, they just zigged when I needed them to zag, and that Alaska country is so vast, you know. It's so tough to catch up to them, and I – I can't believe how well a 12 foot tall animal with paddles on them can hide in that, you know, you just disappear into thin air. It's amazing. Oh yeah. Without a doubt. Nick. I mean, that's, that's a whole new level up there as far as how big a country you're dealing with and you know, the, how big animals and everything is just on steroids up there as far as size goes. So yeah. yeah. I, I, and same thing as your Wyoming hunt, just full of grizzly bears. They were everywhere. <laughs> tracks everywhere and i think i saw i don't know maybe six or seven of those things on the hunt i can't i can't remember exactly how many i saw but there was a bunch of them they were going everywhere where you know you're a little leery at night in your tent keep a clean camp and hang up your food in the tallest little uh, stunted growth tree you can find <laughs> yeah uh, oh yeah i can imagine so were you up there during the rut were they you know grunting and rutting or what was it like yes yeah, so i was up there during the rut where i started up high I was catching more of a migration where they where they migrate through to their rutting grounds, and that was really the best hunting, but they weren't responding too much to a call there. They were just absolutely rolling country and moving through, but giant bulls you were trying to get in front of, and as we got lower on the system, yeah, then we were running into some rutting bulls, but... I practice and practice my calling and my raking, and I I was really dialed in on it. Um, but no, I just couldn't. I called one in um, 
I called a smaller bull in that I wasn't sure if he was legal. I called another really good shooter bull in. But moose are different than elk. They can come in two hours later from when you call. So I was calling in the evening, and this thing came, and it crossed the river while we were sitting by the fire. And just this giant bull grunting the whole way, crossed the river, and then walked through our camp. But it was was dark. I could just see him through my binos crossing the river and hear him grunting or whatever. Um, And then I called another one that was coming in that just – uh, you know, I don't know what happened. Um, the wind was good and coming in grunting and then kind of turned off and we never did see him. We just heard him in the brush in there and, and couldn't catch up to him. But yeah, they were rutting. We had great dates, um, just up high, a little bit more migration and not enough cows around, just kind of bulls up there. But, um, great experience and you you learn so much and gain so much information and when you're doing any do-it-yourself hunt you know on public lands you know you you got to gain experience and learn their habits and 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 learn what went wrong and so you know i i really gained a ton of knowledge on hunting moose and their habits and habitat and and tendencies and so you know i can't wait i'm just going to save my pennies and i'm going to go back up and and go hunt them again it was a really good spot but yeah it was such an epic adventure so much fun you know i i wouldn't trade it for the world oh awesome yeah it's it sounds amazing i it's kind of embarrassing to say i haven't even hunted alaska yet let alone been to alaska so it's definitely on the radar for me too oh i bet yeah that was like me too i'd always wanted to but it's so vast when you're looking at it and the landscape is so much different than what we hunt out west and it's hard to know where's good and where isn't good but yeah now i have a a good buddy that moved up there and in some other contacts and now that i've been up there once you know now we're gonna do a caribou hunt next year just a little bit more affordable and and you can do it in august and so i'm gonna run up there and do a caribou hunt with them and fish for some arctic char and some different things with the fly rods but um but yeah I'm, i'm looking forward to making an adventure out of alaska as many years as i can and hopefully every year get up there for something yeah absolutely i'm, I'm sure it's just like hawaii or anywhere once you kind of get a little taste of it you're like i gotta go back i gotta go back well and like with any game you hunt whether it's high country mule deer or lowland mule deer or elk like if you just do it once and you gain that information, it's like you gain the confidence to go back and do it again yeah. and do it in different places. And I, I think that's the key is just any adventure you want, you know, you just get started and just go. And yeah, you might not find success the first year, but you're going to learn a lot and have a good adventure. And, and really, that's what life and hunting out west is all about. Amen, brother. You got it. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. right on. Well, um, again, I'm just so impressed with the success you've had and, and how quickly you, you've learned to be successful out west and on different species. You're a heck of a hunter. So I'm really glad you're on here with me, Dan, and, and appreciate it. So guys can get a hold of you um, through Eastman's, through uh, Facebook, Instagram, uh, through your email there at Eastman's, um, and, and get a hold of you that way. Um, I Guys have to go check out that Beyond the Grid, your internet TV show that you're doing a lot with. Um, I've got to check out that new episode that aired, that new Whitetail episode. I I can't wait to check that out. But, um, man, great going, Dan. I'm yep. super impressed with what you've accomplished and, and what you've become as a Western hunter. You know, uh, uh, Definitely an example for us to follow. Well, no, right back to you, buddy. I mean, I've read your stuff before I even started working here, and the respect is definitely mutual and definitely appreciate all your hard work and what you've been doing too, so. Yep. We gotta we gotta do this again, man. I can't believe it's taken us this long to actually sit down and have a chat. I guess we, we've been busy. 
Yeah, for sure. We're always busy doing something. Yeah, we'll have to have to get on and do a chat and then share a camp one of these days when it when it pencils out. I know we're both so busy, but I'm sure you got some great adventures planned for next year, huh? Yep, yep. I'm definitely uh I got my sights on Prince of Wales for Blacktail early this year. Um going to do that and then kind of just depends on the draws, but uh oh yeah, I always got lots of stuff going, that's for sure. Got all my buddies applied for tags and we'll see what people draw. Yeah, for sure. Good for you. Um, so Prince of Wales, uh, you're going to go hunt blacktail up there. What time of year? Yeah, it's going to be early in, in August there in the Alpine. Oh, um, man, that looks awesome. Yeah, I got a, a Bozeman buddy up there. He uh, His dad has a fishing camp up by Wrangell, and basically they hang out, fish, you know, do the salmon thing, and when you get a clear slot of weather, you hop on the boat and buzz over there and and go for it in that alpine i've heard it's a really tough hunt the hardest part of the hunt is just getting up to the alpine but lots of deer and they're pretty pretty stockable and not too spooky so i'm looking looking forward to this one for sure oh dude that's gonna be insane yeah i've looked at that a bunch so prince of wales hike up into the into the alpine is it gonna be like uh they're gonna be in velvet you think Oh yeah, yeah, they'll they'll be in velvet. I think they start rubbing oh the third or maybe fourth week of August, kinda like, you know, bucks down here, so maybe a little before. But yeah, velvet bucks, summer range type stuff for sure. Oh wow. What dates are you planning on going up there? Um, nothing set in stone yet. Um probably somewhere from the tenth to the twentieth of August in that range. Oh, how cool. Good for you. Yeah, so, it's going to be yep. an awesome adventure up there. And, and nice you got a, a buddy up there that you can kind of uh, kind of help you out, and they've got a boat, and they'll get you over to the island. And um, it's going to be tough waiting for the the right weather out there. It can be pretty rainy, huh? Yeah, I think that's the biggest hurdle is is weather, getting you know this, some clear days, consecutive days. You know, you hear about guys going up there, and they plan a week trip, and you know, six of the days you're rained in, fogged in, you can't really do anything and you get one day to hunt. So there's a lot of chance to it, but hopefully as long as I don't have too much other um, things going on in August, I'll be able to spend some, you know, some serious time up there and wait for a good slot in the weather. Yeah, right on. Well, and it's so, uh, so beautiful up there. Like that Alpine is kind of above tree line, but Alaska coastal range, that just looks really cool to me. Oh yeah, waterfalls and all sorts of uh, foliage up there, and you know, high country rocks and just you know, any unlike anything that we get to hunt down here in the lower 48. So definitely one of those hunts that you know you kind of romanticize about and dream about if, if you're a high country hunter for sure. Yeah, sounds epic. Well, yeah, I can't wait to see your success this season. I I know you're gonna gonna kill some really nice critters and have some good adventures. So again, thanks Dan a bunch for being on uh, Eastman's Elevated with me, and and uh, let's keep in touch. Sounds good, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. All right, guys, that's a wrap. Uh, another episode of Eastman's Elevated in the books. Uh, so really fun sitting down with Dan Picard. That guy's just wise beyond his years, and and he's found a way to be consistently successful on Western game. So there there's a lot to be learned and a lot of good tips in that episode. And and uh, so if you guys get a chance, make sure you reach out to Dan and let him know that you liked him on the podcast. Um, give him a follow on his Beyond the Grid uh, Hunting TV on his Instagram and his Facebook page. He's really putting out some great content out there. So go check him out. Um, 
again, just really liking this platform of podcasting, boy, being able to sit down with other successful Western hunters and, and be able to compare theories and compare notes and, and, and ideas. Um, I'm really learning a ton in this this new age of hunting is this ever-evolving circle of knowledge where just the the more you learn the better you get but there's no limit to it you know you you can just keep progressing and keep getting better at your execution and your fitness and and your knowledge base and research and and this podcasting is just a, a great platform to learn and so i think we're putting out some really good information out there and i i love the guys that reach out to me and i've had some really successful hunters that you know and it it shouldn't surprise me i guess they're just like me where they're always trying to gain knowledge from from different places um, but really successful western hunters that are fans of the podcast that are listening in they're enjoying it um, and, and a lot of the guests I've had have just been fans that have hit me up to tell me that they they like Eastman's Elevated and then we we get them on the podcast and do an episode you know guys like Ryan Lampers and Travis No Whitney and and Zach Kenner and and oh, and the the other day it was just a mind bender. I had uh, Joe Rogan hit me up and said that he he loved the podcast and that he's a fan and looks forward to each episode coming out. So, um, I mean that guy's just next level as far as podcasting skills. But it just gives me a lot of confidence that we're doing the right thing and getting good information out there. And and yeah, I trip over my words here and there and I mess up here and there and and now and again. But I I think that's what makes this platform great is is the authentic nature of it. You know where you just say what comes. To your mind and and sure it doesn't always come out right or rehearsed but that's the cool thing about it and so just really enjoying doing this guys and it i couldn't make it happen without you so thanks all you guys for listening in for for liking the instagram and facebook page and giving me support and in, in everything i do so i really appreciate it guys um Thanks again to Bloodsport Arrows and Gravedigger Broadheads for sponsoring the podcast and, and being part of this podcast. I really appreciate the support, and I, I really like the products they're putting out there. Great arrows and, and super impressed with those broadheads. Like I say, I've got nothing but results from those broadheads, and, and uh, I sure like the way they fly and, and the aerodynamic nature of them. Um, so go check them out as well. Uh, and, and that's a wrap. Uh, until next week, uh, you guys have a good one and keep working hard.